What do we call visible light? So asks one of the characters in Anthony Doerr's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, All the Light We Cannot See. What do we call visible light? The character asks. We call visible light color, he explains, going on to say, but the electromagnetic spectrum runs to zero in one direction and infinity in the other, so really, mathematically, most light is invisible. This exquisite novel takes place during World War II, and the passage that I've just read from it, this passage about the sheer preponderance of light that constantly surrounds us, the vast majority of which we cannot see. This passage is the central metaphor of this exquisite novel. Doerr's point in the novel is that even amid unspeakable darkness, here in the novel, of course, the unspeakable darkness of the Holocaust, that even amid unspeakable darkness still, Small individual acts of goodness happen all around us, only they are so small and so isolated from us that we don't see them. But that just because these acts of goodness are small and unseen doesn't mean that they don't have larger implications. And so listen now to how Dora captures this truth. This is long, but I promise it's worth it. Go with me here. Consider a single piece of coal glowing in your family's stove, his character explains. You see it? That chunk of coal was once a green plant, a fern or a reed that lived one million years ago or maybe two million or maybe 100 million. Every summer for the whole life of that plant its leaves caught what light they could and transformed the sun's energy into itself, into bark, twigs, stems, because plants eat light in much the way we eat food. But then the plant died and fell probably into water and decayed into peat, and the peat was folded inside the earth for years upon years for eons, in which something like a month or a decade or even your whole life was just a puff of air, just a snap of two fingers. And eventually the peat dried and became like stone, and someone dug it up, and the coal man brought it to your house, and maybe you yourself carried it to the stove, and now that sunlight, sunlight 100 million years old, now that sunlight is heating your home tonight. You follow his point. That age-old moment of light, which took place long before, is now powering the present moment, he sang. And this is the central insight of this Pulitzer Prize-winning novel. Doerr reminds us as readers that even amid present and palpable darkness still, acts of goodness and mercy, acts of light take place all around us every day. And moreover, that small and unseen though they are, they nonetheless eventuate in goodness and mercy that does become visible later on. And thus the novel is aptly titled, All the Light We Cannot See. 
And I bring it up this morning because I can think of no more powerful illustration for capturing one of the central insights of John chapter 1, which is, of course, our gospel text for today. So let's turn back to that text together. The Word became flesh, John opens his gospel by saying, and dwelt among us. What came into being in him was life, and that life was the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Through this metaphorical language, John tells his version of the Christmas story. In John, we don't have shepherds keeping watch of their flocks by night. In John, we don't have wise men traveling from the east. In John, we don't have stables or mangers or multitudes of the heavenly host. In John, in John we just have poetry and metaphor and symbolism. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Him was life, and that life was the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. It's all so lovely, really. It's missing a story, yes, but in many ways, because it is, it is even more powerful and more evocative of a Christmas story. Because it reminds us that while the Christmas story is a story, a narration of an event that absolutely happened, it is also a mystery so profound that it defies full explanation. And likewise, it reminds us in a way that story perhaps cannot, that the depth of brokenness in the world is deeper than we often realize But yet the power of goodness is far more potent than we typically assume. All through a few lines of poetry. Leading me now to a story. Two years or so ago now, April and I took the girls, there was no wit at this time, to a trampoline park in London, Kentucky. And Ada, who was four at the time, had been talking all morning about attempting the obstacle course at the trampoline park. You see, we'd been to this place approximately 750,000 times before, (laughs) but Ada had always been too terrified to give the obstacle course a shot. Well, this time, upon arrival and upon giving it a thorough look over, Ada decided to actually proceed with giving it a shot. And so she began moving from one section of the course to the next, moving slowly and cautiously but determinedly. And all the while, April and Juliana and I were watching closely by, cheering her on, and I myself was poised to jump in and help her should trouble arise. Well, First, you must know that it was packed at this trampoline park that day. They always are. Second, you must know that there were dozens of other kids in line behind Ada on this obstacle course in that moment. Finally, you must know that Ada was easily the youngest of them all. 
at least a head shorter and at least a few years younger than. And so there they were, all filing through this obstacle course, moving together like a well-oiled machine, until suddenly Ada reached the ropes portion of the course. And now suddenly she was on a platform some five feet off the ground, and her next obstacle was to put her feet in foot rings and swing off of that platform on a rope. Well, she was four years old, and to her five feet off of the ground may as well have been a hundred. And what's more, the rope was dangling just out of her reach, and so try as she might, she couldn't even get her hands on the rope itself. And suddenly that caravan of kids behind her was bottlenecked by her incapacity to move forward. And so they became impatient. And soon enough they began yelling at her to hurry, to move, to get out of the way, calling her a few names. And remember now, she's easily the youngest one on this obstacle course, so the pressure And the sense of threat that she was experiencing this moment were no doubt enormous. I could see it on her little face. Her bottom lip had begun to quiver. Her face had turned red like it does whenever she's embarrassed or ashamed. And she was ready to give up. I could see it. And so I was seconds, I mean milliseconds, from stepping into the situation and saving her from it. When suddenly I saw this happen. Another little girl behind her, a girl probably two or three years older than Ada, pushed a boy behind Ada out of the way, reached past Ada and grabbed the rope for her, turned around and told everyone else on that platform to stand back, to hold back, And then she put her hand on my daughter's shoulder and she said, you can do this. I know you can. And I watched my daughter's face as she received this encouragement. I watched this beautiful admixture of surprise and gratitude and trust and determination spread on her face. I watched her nod. And then guess what? She did it. My little girl stepped off of that platform, swung forward on that rope, and went on to finish the course. And that's the end of that story. Now, will anyone ever write a book about that moment? No, of course not. For on the surface, this is such a tiny trivial moment in a much larger, much more complicated world. And thus, it would be easy to chalk this story up to near irrelevancy, to a cute and inspiring story that makes for a moving anecdote, no doubt, but that bears no tangible impact on the larger world. But you see, that would be to grossly misunderstand what John is saying about the Incarnation in the first chapter of his Gospel. To hear this story and assume that an act of pure goodness and kindness like this could somehow be self-contained 
That would be to buy the lie that the darkness can overcome the light. To hear this story and think that because it is so small and seemingly insignificant, that it therefore has no real bearing on the coming kingdom of God, is to discount all the light that we cannot see, simply because we right now cannot see it. And therefore, so as to show how this story is illustrative of John chapter 1 and of the incarnation and of the coming kingdom of God, let me now elaborate on this little story. In the two years since that happened, I have several times been faced with situations in which I knew what the right thing to do was, situations in which I knew what the good and just action was, but also knew would potentially cost me something if I did the good and just thing. And so like any human being, in each of these instances, I thought long and hard about remaining silent, about doing nothing, about ensuring my own self-preservation. Who among us doesn't? But each time I did, Guess who suddenly came to mind? That brave little girl who no doubt thought about her own self-preservation, but who nonetheless stepped up and showed kindness and generosity to my daughter because it was the right thing to do. If she could do it, I have reasoned several times since, then so could I. And so it has been that several times in the last two years, I have found courage and inspiration through the small, otherwise unseen act of a child whose name I do not know and whose life I'll never know another thing about. Friends, that is the power of goodness. That is the power of light. And that is what John is trying to draw our attention to in his poetic opening to his gospel. That even when the world appears to be patently evil, that even when the world appears to be covered in darkness, in sin and error pining, that still goodness spreads quietly and unassumingly, and that still light slowly drowns out the darkness even though we can't in the moment see it. Let's talk Christian theology for a minute. The Christian hope concerning the coming kingdom of God is this, that come that day, all goodness and mercy and kindness that we have demonstrated, that all justice and generosity and love for which we have been responsible, that come that day, all of it will be made manifest. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, quote, Our work will be shown on that day for what it is, because that day will bring it all to light. On that day, all evil and hatred and injustice will be burned away. On that day, all darkness will be swallowed up by light. On that day, we will behold all the goodness that has been suppressed and covered over by human brokenness and darkness. On that day, we will behold all the light we have until now been unable 
to see. End of theology lesson. Let's turn back to more practical matters. For yes, that is the Christian hope. That is the coming reality we take on faith. But until that day, we, as the Apostle Paul also writes, suffer under the weight of this present reality. This reality fully visible to our senses and the one we find most demonstrable in our own lives and in our daily news. And in this present reality, to believe that the darkness will one day be swallowed up by light and to believe that goodness will ever fully triumph over evil is indeed an act of faith. For look at the horrors of our world. Look at the sufferings that surround us and come upon us. It takes real faith to believe that this way will not always be the way. And thus to bring this all full circle, that is why John's poetic opening to his gospel is of such deep and abiding significance to us as people of faith. Because the metaphorical, symbolic value of it enables us to recognize not only that it happened there then, but that it can and does still happen here now. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John writes, and because it did, it still does. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it, John writes. Well, because it shone then, still it shines now. And it will never be covered over. We live in a cruel world. A world where deep injustices persist and where unspeakable acts of darkness happen daily. A world where people look out for themselves and where the thought that a little girl might defy a mob to stand up for another little girl that she doesn't even know. Well, we live in a world where that seems almost absurd. Almost as absurd as the thought of God so loving a broken, intransigent humanity that He'd come to us as one of our own in order to save us from ourselves. Yet that's precisely what God did. We as Christians proclaim. And thus, as followers of Christ, as Christ's body on earth, we are given the awesome opportunity to, like Christ, make the eternal word of goodness become flesh, become tiny realities in the world around us daily. Yes, as followers of Christ, we are given the awesome opportunity to, like that unnamed little girl, shine tiny little lights in the darkness. Let's wrap this up. The light we can see is called color, Dora writes. All the other light remains to us invisible. Well, as people of faith, we trust that all the light we cannot now see will one day become visible to us. One day we trust we will see it all in color. 
Until that day, we trust that because the word became flesh then, it continues to become flesh now, and that because the darkness could not overcome the light then, it still cannot overcome it today. On Christmas Eve, right here in this sanctuary, we lit our own candles from the Christ candle, and then we carried our little lights out of the sanctuary into the still dark night. Like the first chapter of John's gospel, there is such deep meaning in this symbolism. And so as we move beyond Christmas, may those little lights of ours, may those flames continue to flicker through small, unassuming daily acts of goodness and grace. And may our own lives continue to bear the fruit of the word becoming flesh. And all God's people said, Amen.